You're listening to an ACA podcast. Um, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Max Delaney, and it's a great pleasure to welcome you to ACA this afternoon for Paul Yor in conversation with Nick Henderson as the first keynote event in a series of public programs aligned with ACA's new exhibition, Paul Your Word Made Flesh. We are, of course, gathered on Aboriginal land, and I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people as sovereign custodians of the land upon which we meet, along with the neighbouring Bunwurrung and Bunurong people and wider Kulin nations. We acknowledge their long-standing and continuing sovereignty, vision, philosophy, and care for community, culture, and country. And we extend our respect to ancestors and elders, past and present, and to all First Nations people joining us today, both live and on the ACCA podcast. ACCA is proud to present Paul Your Word Made Flesh, an extensive survey exhibition covering the past decade or so of Paul's practice alongside a major new commission. It's been a real privilege to work with Paul and with Devon Ackerman as co-curator of the exhibition, and together we'd like to thank the many collaborators and supporters who've made this exhibition possible. It has already been super rewarding to engage with visitors to the exhibition and the really passionate conversations that have ensued. These conversations continue this evening with Paul in dialogue with Nick Henderson, and it's a pleasure to introduce them both this evening. Firstly, Paul. Paul Yor is one of Australia's most thought-provoking and consequential contemporary artists. Born in Nam, Melbourne in 1987, Paul lives and works on Gunai Kurnai country in Gippsland and completed his studies in painting, archaeology and anthropology at Monash University in 2010. Paul's work engages with the histories of religious art and ritual, queer identity, pop culture and neoliberal capitalism, recasting a breathtaking array of found images, materials and texts into sexually and politically loaded tableau and assemblages which celebrate hybrid and fluid identities, unstable and contradictory meanings and the glowing horizon of queer world making. Joining Paul this evening is Nick Henderson, who is a curator, archivist and historian. Nick is currently a curator at the National Film and Sound Archives and a volunteer committee member and collection manager at the Australian Queer Archives. Nick has worked as a curator and archivist across national and state cultural institutions for 25 years and for the past 15 years has been highly active at the intersection of queer histories and the GLAM, or gallery, libraries and museum sector across Australia. Nick's recent projects have included curating, producing and consulting with organisations including the National Portrait Gallery, National Gallery of Victoria, UNSW Galleries, Sydney AIDS Memorial, Meta, Bamali, Expressions Australia, Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency and the Pride Centre among others. Um, as we begin, I'd also like to thank and welcome Elise Goldfinch, who has recently joined us from Sydney as ACCA's new Curator of Public Programs and Publications, and who has organised this evening's program, um, along with the ACCA team, and along with a forthcoming series of talks, lectures, performances, and stitch and bitch sessions over the course of the exhibition. Elise will be on hand with a microphone for question time, so please do join in the conversation. Um, there are also, just if people have not got a seat, there are some additional museum stalls over here if people would like to find one. Um, so please, um, without further ado, please welcome Paul Yore and Nick Henderson.
Fantastic. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming along. Uh, it's a great pleasure and honour to uh, be here with Paul on stage. Um, I thought one of the things we might start with was the last conversation we had just before we came in. And you talked about, uh, I guess, being a visual artist and, and working in visual means, the expectation on artists to, you know, I guess, do the interpretation, do the interviews, do all of these other kind of work in addition to, to promote and to articulate. And I, I guess the sometimes the uh, how overwhelming that can be in the process of putting on an exhibition. How has this last kind of couple of weeks been for you? Yeah, it's, um, it's strange. We, we were talking before about um, the expectation on visual artists to sort of um, be verbal and iterate themselves in legible ways uh, beyond the work they or already do visually. It's a great sort of contradiction. Um, and I, I think for me, um, as a visual artist, I often see my work as beginning where language ends in a way, or, or language as we understand it in the written and spoken form that, that, that sort of is reductionist and limiting and, and at that threshold I think the visual um, or other other kind of forms of art that are immersive whether it's sound or, or, or tactility um, those sort of sensations that's where I'm kind of interested in the conversation beginning you know so it always feels unnatural paradoxical uncomfortable to have to actually um, explain what I'm doing and, and how I'm thinking through those um, processes and things using words like a normal human being like or something. <laughs> and words form such a significant part of your practice and the signs and and work that uh, kind of go into you know particularly this first room here the signs um, you know that kind of reception of, of text and of language and, and how you kind of transform that um, you know, where where does that point start from from this kind of first room as you walk through? Mm, yeah, I mean, um, because the the exhibition is structured, um, yeah, around these sort of um, kind of conceptual rubrics. Um, I guess linguistics does play a big part in um, in my thinking as an artist, and science in the semiotic sense, and and in the literal sense too, in the sort of advertising or in in the sort of ubiquity of um, warning signs or um, what often feels like this kind of the state or bureaucracy shouting at you th through, you know, sort of signs um, mm. in, in the landscape. They form such a kind of visible but also um, like sort of, you know, um, invisible or omnipresent um, presence in our lives. Mm. Um, so I think that's where the exhibition opens in this sort of bringing together of these very sloganistic, um, text-based embroidery works that draw on a lot of found um, slogans, phrases, lyrics, um, idioms, and um, I think embroidery couches those that kind of vernacular well because there's something about textiles that is so intimately connected to language, which mm. doesn't seem immediately apparent, but is at least etymologically because text and textile actually share um, an etymology in the root text area, meaning to weave, and that, that kind of becomes logical when you think about how we use language, how it's woven together, how it's formed. Mm. Um, but then also, say, the historical precedent of, of Victorian samplers, you know, because that's really the sort of scale and format of those embroidery works. Is um, that the kind of, in terms of 
when you first started doing that, that, that work initially, was that the kind of point of reference that you started with in terms of the, the size, the form? I think maybe unconsciously it was. I mean, I think there's something practical about something that is about the size of a cushion and sits on your lap. Yep. Um, but I mean, I arrived at um, I arrived at embroidery and textiles very spontaneously um, after like a mental health crisis. So I never set about making works um, in a very formal way. Mm. But I took up this sort of small scale, intimate kind of form because it was practical, I guess. And I think that's also what the sampler was mm. in the Victorian era and was such a formed such a large part of um, like pedagogy for especially mm. young girls growing up and like learning their prayers and their ABCs and, and, and also embroidery as well so that they could be sort of seamlessly folded into mm. life as domestic servants or housewives and whatnot. So there is a long tradition of how embroidery and language and language acquisition and certain rigid forms of language are mm. kind of um, taken up through because it has quite a domestic um, space for you in the sense of, you know, where you produce those works to, on television, like while you're watching television or, or in bed or travelling. Yeah. Oh, no, totally. I mean, that, for me, that's the, one of the therapeutic and comforting aspects of working with your hands and with wool and that relationship to the domestic is very interesting and important for me as a queer artist in terms of taking up or drawing upon those very rich gendered histories of um, embroidery and stitching and, and needlework. Um, and I think that that first room in the exhibition does, um, because a lot of these works have also ended up in people's homes and then they've come back into the gallery space and they've sort of been framed in the process or they take on the scale of, there's something very domestic about that. Um, yeah. Has it been strange seeing all the works come back together and seeing the relationship between them. I guess it's not often you've been able to bring so many works of yours together on this scale, so. Yeah, no, it's a very strange exhibition for me to produce um, in a way, like it's not, not typical because, um, um, yeah, of these, this back catalogue of work. I think I'm still kind of processing and thinking about the totality of, of all of that work and what it represents um, as a whole body of work, um, because I do almost see it as a, one continuous um, unfolding kind of um, body of, yeah. of processes and explorations rather than single pieces or something Absolutely. like that. Um, but it's odd to see it uh, en masse, uh, but it feels fitting as well. It felt like to do an exhibition like this, we had to sort of reach and find, draw upon like such a large body of work mm. and go back to the origins of of the process. Um, and and grouping them together, I guess, in, in the way that you have in terms of the, um, the spaces leading up to the major commission. Um, did that kind of feel like a natural process? And you did that with, in addition to Max, also uh, your partner, Devon? Yes, my partner Devon designed the exhibition um, and in, in, in consult with Max as the curator. Um, and that was very important because Devon not only works with me on, on the pieces, um, but also knows the work so intimately. Uh, but also has is sort of once removed from from the process as well, so was able to sort of like formalise and and frame the work, but with an intimate knowledge of where it had come from and how things fit together, because it became immediately. I mean, a survey exhibition or a retrospective or any kind of framing of a of a, a period or a decade or yep. a fifteen years of work um, is a very odd proposition in the first place. It became immediately apparently we couldn't do it chronologically because yep. it's just 
was too wild and chaotic when you actually, if you put the works in order, it would be a more incomprehensible show than it already is. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was the imposition of certain sure. scale and, and formal and kind of conceptual, um, yep. you know, impositions. And it, I mean, even in your work in terms of your, the constructions, the, the rooms and the spaces that you make with uh, your sculptural pieces, you're often creating, recreating and kind of drawing on a, a mass of material uh, that gets formed. So there is, I guess, a constant process of, of looking at how things, you know, moving forward and backward, relating to each other within each of the space. Um, with this, where did you, uh, I guess, the process of creating the major work and reflecting on the works that had come before, um, what was the kind of stepping off point for uh, Word Made Flesh, uh, the installation? Mm. Part? Yeah, no, it, it's an interesting process because um, so much of the demands of a contemporary artist is to make something new, or so much of the demands of capitalist production is the yep. idea of the new or something. And I think, you know, the art institution has also internalised that idea of what's new and what's, you know. So, I mean, in some ways it is completely new work that was conceived for this particular architecture and this particular cultural moment, this particular opportunity. On the other hand, it's a sort of cannibalising and reconfiguring and remixing and, um, Re reconstruction of a whole archive of objects and materials and forms that I've been collecting for over 10 years, um, probably closer to 15 years, which includes sort of um, junk and hoarding. Um, I don't want to glamorise it too much by <laughs> saying I'm an archaeologist or archivist like you. Um, oh, look, of... I can tell you that archiving gets very much into hoarding territory. Thankfully, I've, I've, I've got an institution that I can take my stuff to. Um, yeah. But, yeah, does it feel like that sometimes? I mean, you must, you know, pick up so much stuff, like, you know, beside the road, you get given material. I think I've given you a few Pong magazines, so, you know... <laughs> obviously said we weren't going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, there's certainly a lot of material that you must amass and have to, to reference and source. Um, mm. Does it feel overwhelming sometimes, all that material? Oh, it's totally overwhelming. What, what's very interesting for me, people often see the joyful aspect in the work, because I'm very attracted to colour and um, sort of camp and, you know, I guess the more garish and the more ridiculous and absurd something is and the more trashy, the more I'm attracted to it, which I think's to do with marginality, it's to do with, with queerness, you know, it's to do with the embracing of things that, have, that maybe don't belong or aren't seen mm. as important or having that belonging high in that hierarchy of value that we impose on... Being more ephemeral, disposable. Yeah, no, totally. So I'm attracted to those things and... I think people have nostalgic attachments to some of the objects I've collected, but when I view it as a mass, because the work iterates through accumulation, I'm trying to represent the way in which this stuff is sort of almost pours out of society in this uncontrolled way, um, and to try and describe, which I think it's impossible, mm. but to try and describe something of this complete embeddedness of our civilization now in plastic waste and, and microplastic and toxins and pollution and Because well, so. it really brings to mind, you know, I see a, a, that kind of drift net through culture and, and waste and, you know, the microplastics in the ocean and, and that side. Um, do you, I guess, putting all of that material together in some of these works, so you, you know, is there a concern, the synthetic, the, um, that some of this material um, won't last, won't kind of have that sense of permanency? I mean, creating some of these works um, from material that is likely to degrade mm. substantially? 
Yeah, no, I think I've... Not as a warning to museums <coughs> in yeah. context of collecting. Um, yeah, no, but to totally. I mean, there is a tradition of, I mean, especially conceptual artists, say, like in the 60s and 70s, and particularly from a feminist standpoint, um, began to think about um, forms, methodologies, materials that that directly challenge that archival or that idea of monumentality or stability of an object and how it can be retained or, um, yeah, sort of um, canonized. And um, I think there is an, an embrace uh, of that principle in my work too, a sort of um, embrace of, of degradation as mm. a necessary process that then folds back on, on the materiality. And um, <clears throat> it was interesting to bring and say some of the textiles that are 10 or, or 12 years old that I haven't even seen for such a long time and then to see um, some of the wear and tear and mm. some of the some of the more um, awful kind of um, materials so like um, uh, sort of disposable um, kind of bags and and things some of the materials have degraded quite a lot almost sort of dissolved or become started to fragment and things like that I think that's terrifying for an institution. For me, it's kind of interesting, you know, because that's there. There is a point. There is some point where you, um, where life and and the object actually mix, you know, mm. like that. There is no sort of neat point where the object is here in the archive um, and the cat hair and the dust and the <laughs> mold and the um, mites and the bacteria are over here, you know. Like I think there's a there's a continuum. Um, and I think I'm kind of interested in how the materiality is um, subject to those yeah. conditions, you know. And materiality, I'm, I'm interested also in terms of, say, some of the other artists who, you know, maybe someone like David McDermott or Peter Tully in terms of their use of materials and the sort of inspiration uh, that queer artists, you know, before you have taken with their practice and using that, you know, the synthetics and the, you know, the plastics. Um, have there been some particular works or artists who've kind of drawn on that sort of materiality? Well, I mean, definitely Dave McDermott and Peter Tully stand alone in, in that regard. Lee Bowery is also one of my heroes too. Um, and also Alexander McQueen, you know, whose earlier work was made with, you know, using very rudimentary kind of materials. I think what's interesting as a queer artist is that you, um, you are inherently a sort of bricoleur or a collage mm. artist or an assemblage artist because you don't have a complete, you know, sort of cosmology or a complete world for you. You have to invent a world or you have to put together a world from fragments. Um, and, you know, and that happens from a young age, you know. So, like, you start putting together a quilt of, of things that make sense to you and that might be something you see, you know, in church, like a sort of... Um, scantily clad saint or something, uh, might be a Shirley Bassey Bond theme, it might be, who knows what, you know, a Calvin Klein ad or, you know, you build up these kind of matrix of images and forms that begin to make sense to you, but then to my late teens when I counted the Australian surrealist James Gleason mm -hmm. on a school excursion to the NGV, that was like walking into a brightly lit room, you know, because I hadn't... I hadn't seen, uh, you know, queer art in a public space. I hadn't seen forms that spoke the language that, you know, I needed to hear, you know. I could have only put together things um, that I'd found, you know, little pieces and clues of my kind of sexual identity or my yeah. experience as a queer person. So I think that's where collage comes from. Absolutely. Um, for me, is this necessity of putting things together. Um, 
and that's often trash, you know. Yeah. And, you know, I, th I think it, it is really fascinating and also seeing, like you talked about that, the, the work of Gleeson and, and seeing it and, you know, even seeing the nude male body, um, you know, I, I did have a bit of a look through the NGV catalogue with, with queer and just seeing that disproportionate representation. Um, your work was included in the recent queer exhibition and I think often with... Um, your work draws on and, and kind of uh, uh, shows, you know, different bodily fluids and, you know, erections and, scatter, you know, all of these different things which, you know, most of those institutions aren't as comfortable with. Um, how has it been seeing, the, I guess, that institutionalisation of your work? Um, you know, is it queering those institutions? Is, are they, you know, what's the kind of um, reception been? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think it's an ongoing negotiation. I think um, societal standards and expectations of public space, I think those things are shifting all the time. And um, I mean, as artists, as, as producers of, of cultural information um, and producers of images and things, I feel like artists are just a small part of kind of making visible some of those things that um, are maybe challenging to a society that's still deeply entrenched in, you know, colonial forms of puritanism and mm -hmm. the maintenance of, of, of society in, in, and moralising. And I think, yeah, it's, it's a difficult question because I think it's an ongoing negotiation. Um, as an artist, show, showing public space is really important um, because, as I mentioned, you know, when I was a kid and going into museums, the few times I did see queer art was extremely affirming for me, you know. Um, and it's easy for mainstream culture to forget that, you know, queer and trans youth still experience higher rates of suicide and suicidal ideation and a whole range of other kind of issues. And a lot of those issues stem ultimately from not seeing themselves reflected in, in society, in mainstream society. But then, see, the NGV um, exhibition, which I, I, I promised myself I wasn't going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was an interesting exhibition. So on the one hand, I was honoured to be included. And, you know, the NGV is such an illustrious, important institution. On the other hand, I mean, there was so much interesting critique of that exhibition emerged. Um, and the most interesting for me was about what is at stake when, when we do achieve queer visibility? Because then are we... Is it sanitized or is it made palatable? Or are things that should never be made so easily legible in public space like the AIDS crisis, do, then, do they then become sort of archived? Do they then become fetishistic? Do they then become objects mm. or memorials or monuments, whereas actually what they really are are living memories and histories or reminders of, of what we need to strive for as community, you know? Yeah. And that, that's a really, there's a really tenuous, um, it is, yeah. and I, certainly for myself, going through that exhibition and seeing the audiences who were there, which were often quite diverse, you know, seeing young queer folk, uh, seeing school groups, uh, seeing, you know, older couples, uh, older queer couples going in and, and seeing things that they recalled and remembered and, and having different conversations and, and opening those up. Um, I always do find it interesting, you know, and, and even going through his, uh, your exhibition and seeing uh, just standing behind and watching people engage with that process. Um, how have, do, you, do you get a lot of feedback from um, different, a range of people from 
perhaps already from this exhibition? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, the response has been really amazing. Um, for me, I try, and, I try and tune out a little bit because, um, not that it's distracting, but I think uh, I just, I have a very old um, fashioned Marxist view of what it means to be an artist, which is just sort of a worker, you know. Um, it's just, I'm just making my work, you know. Um, and uh, it's, it's lovely to be recognised or to have accolades or to be celebrated in a way, but um, on, the other hand, on the other hand, I see it as um, just my research and my methodologies and what I'm working with all the time, you know. Um, Setting yourself outside that process to some extent? A, a little bit, yeah, because um, for me it's not what an artist I is necessarily, you know what I mean? Um, sort of, um, and particular, I mean, in this country there's no good sort of arts writing and, and there's no proper art critique and journalism. I mean, a little bit, but, you know, it's, it's a bit trashy, Australian media <laughs> landscape. Let's face it, we all sort of know this. But, and, so, and so, you know, you know, I guess with some of the things, it doesn't take much to cause a controversy. Um, you know, and I'm also looking at, you know, obviously you have a, a significant uh, history with that. Um, what was that process like going in? Um, I think the, we've got this advisory note uh, here, and I think a particular approach was taken with this one, which was, um, did you want to go through that process? Or? Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, because I have my work's been censored and also subject to a legal challenge in, in this country and there's been pushback from, you know, the state, if you like, um, because of some of the um, themes and content of my work, there's always a sort of, um, is it, yeah, there's always a negotiation and there's always a kind of, um, which is a process that I think I'm, I embrace, a process of, um, what can be displayed, how it's to be framed, how it goes into public space and how it, um, yeah, exists out in the world. Um, I think for me that, that volatility, um, which is a very vulnerable space, is a really generative space as well in terms of the discourse of the work and what I'm trying to do in my project as an artist. Um, and the decision was taken, which, I, you know, I was very grateful for, that um, the curatorial decision was one that the advisory warning, for example, for the exhibition is a discursive one and it actually frames the content from a queer perspective and from a, um, a critical perspective, you know, that there is, there is a long discursive history um, of making work, particularly collaged kind of images, um, that has a very important kind of role in, in the image making um, of, this, of this country and, and, and globally too. And, um, so I think we were trying to unpack some of those histories and thinking about how, say, very volatile images or forms, um, say, like, um, images of, from di directly drawn from the language of fascism or, yep. or right-wing propaganda then um, can be couched within an art exhibition or within an artwork, you know. And I think, what, well, particularly in the current context or around recent legislation? Oh, well, absolutely. And, and I think those things are only becoming more and more volatile, you know. Um, it's the cultural climate now feels so so um, volatile. Actually, mm. it's like a minefield, and um, I think I, I mean I think I still cling to the hope that art is a space where dis real discourse can happen, and, and um, I deploy particular strategies in my work and approaches that um, really try and unpack and frame and um, mediate images and 
Um, I'm very aware of the volatility of the material that I use because it's, it's predominantly found material. Mm. Um, so in that sense, I, I, um, I, I feel like it's never really authorship. It's more about selecting things, putting them together, trying to unpack the multiplicity of meanings and trying to not neutralize, but actually um, uh, yeah, mediate, I think, um, some of these forms and trying to under, try and lessen the, the brutality of, and violence of, of, of some of those forms and images as they you know, appear. So in that terms of, I guess, that process of, of, of doing collage, of putting stuff, of, you know, working through that process on, on the textile, how, how much, uh, I guess, of the, you know, design of the drawings that you're kind of, uh, in terms of your process drawings, kind of feed into that before, or is, is much of it worked out on the textile itself? Mm. Yeah, a lot. I mean, I think um, automatism and um, improvisation um, a really important part of my process uh, because the work is very experimental and, and, and sort of explorative and um, I, I do plan out, I mean some of the larger textile works for example that take on more complex pictorial kind of forms, I will sort of make a lot of preparatory sketches and I will kind of anchor the compositions in, in particular figures or forms um, but the sort of um, topography of the surface, mm. um, a lot of that is improvised and uh, I sometimes talk about the, the kind of intelligence of the hands, you know, in relation to this because it is, it's like a feeling through materials and it's kind of like a putting things together and for me that's always uh, improvised mm. and really that sense of sp spontaneity is what's interesting for me in terms of how um, the work functions semantically because mm. it is about putting things that maybe don't necessarily belong together, together. Absolutely. And up overturning the sensible and opening up then new meanings or multiplicity of, of over-determined meanings, so, yeah. And I guess I'm interested in the, the final, uh, the, the work and kind of what you brought into that and some of the things that you'd wanted to kind of work with for some time, including the, um, the hearse. Um, and can you talk a little bit about how that came to be that particular <laughs> part of the work? Um, yeah, I mean, the hearse for me, um, I mean, I see that as another, just another found object. I think the, the, the car, in a way, um, occupies a particular um, space in the imagination of, of white male Australia, in a way. Um, so I think, first and foremost, I was interested in, in it as a symbol of masculinity or challenging a certain ideal. Um, of the sort of phallic um, nature of, of that. When I, so I was online actually looking for secondhand cars and because I don't drive, and I, it's sort of like the first car I've ever bought. Um, <laughs> it's this 1970s hearse that doesn't drive. Um, and um, yeah, so I mean, yeah, it's a special work for the exhibition because it draws upon, I mean, it draws upon a whole history of, of making. David McDermott was a big influence in terms of the, the sort of disco quilt yep. mosaic surface. Um, but I mean, from my boyhood, I was very interested in Egyptology. So for me, it's kind of via Liberace, the ultimate <laughs> Tutankhamun sort of like, yep. you know, chariot or something. Um, I mean, it's interesting because for me, um, I, I don't really anchor um, 
particular forms and, and images um, in, in my work into particular um, over-determined meanings, you know. I, I see them as floating kind yep. of signifiers and they're available. Uh, but, um, but the hearse for me, I felt like an, it was an important addition that it sits almost at the conclusion mm. of the exhibition that you arrive at it and then have to make your way back yeah, from sure. that moment of encountering death or the idea of death or something like that. Um, it's a very classical idea, really, in a way, the memento mori or mm. the omnipresent spectre of death or something like that, I think, was kind of felt important to sort of mm. include in, um, in a big survey show that I keep joking to people is my posthumous retrospective. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Well, after all the work, I can imagine taking a bit of a break afterwards. Yeah, totally, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and kind of moving back through that space, you know, um, with the dome um, and then the tower, um, what were the, I guess, what were you kind of, the ta I think the dome you used before similarly, but um, I guess cr doing something on this scale to fill that space yeah. more readily, um, where were those kind of forms, uh, I guess, situated in your practice? Yeah, so the tower um, that sort of is composed of LED, lights and LED scrollers and, and neon light and, and sort of PVC banners. The idea was definitely kind of playing up to the architecture of, of the space. I was thinking about the Tower of Babel, this kind of like mythological tower of language. Um, I mean, there are other towers that haunt my work, namely the Twin Towers. Um, I think about a lot as these symbols of American capitalism, but also this seismic event that happened when I was like 13 that I remember seeing was kind of like the, I guess for a certain generation, the JFK kind of assassination or something like. For me, September 11 was this moment that I still remember from my early teens as kind of um, being sort of seismic. Um, and so I think the tower as an idea refers back to um, these ideas of patriarchal, um, or, you know, sort of um, power. Um, um, and the dome is sort of the opposite in a way because it's um, a form that's associated with hippie culture in a way or utopian sort of a kind of retro-futurist um, architectural form um, was embraced a lot in America in the 1960s by certain communes and things. Again, it's a very open-ended form in the work, but it was a, with, it, complete with the sort of fountains and, and the musical element inside. It's about creating a sort of reflective or meditative space and the hay bales and this kind of, uh, and the crochet blankets and this almost evocation of, um, you know, some kind of rural ideal or something. Um, yeah, I mean, I, again, I think these, these forms are very open-ended and, and the way that um, they come together, you know. Hmm. But it was very important for me that I wanted to create something architectural that's completely immersive, you know. I think that's the kind of art I'm really interested in making because um, it's very, a, I think it's very hard to compete with um, the um, prevailing kind of media landscape, the 24-hour news cycle and the, the online kind of distracted culture. For me, making something very totalizing and immersive is a way of almost like, um, I don't want to say trapping, but like immersing the viewer, implicating them back um, in a very physical way in the sort of materiality of culture um, and maybe trying to catch them off guard, you know. And from, I guess, in that capitalist, you know, neoliberalist context, that this work is not something which is going to be, you know, acquired in the same way, exhibited in the same way. Uh, although I know 
you mentioned that there may be some future uh, opportunities for exhibiting the work. Um, is there also that sense um, with your work, I mean, with, instead of the smaller kind of more portable and commercial mm. works, to have that space to where you've got more free reign? Mm. It's um, a sense of dread, if I'm honest. Like, when you, when you work with uh, materiality in such an intensive way, um, there is always this question about where does this stuff go and how, is it, how does it um, exist in the world, you know? Um, and our context is great, but then, you know, I mean, I used to um, sort of keep things in a garden shed, you know, um, piles of, of things. So I think that's an it's an ongoing uh, proposition for me. I think it's exciting in some ways and it's um, terrifying in other ways um, because, yeah, it's not, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's a negotiation, I think. Hmm. Mm. How are we going for time? I'm totally lost track. <laughs> Excellent. Um, right, let's see, where are we up to? Um, I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> Do you have any questions for me? Questions for you. <laughs> As I get my questions. Well, I was interested in, um, I mean, you were talking, because you're also an archivist, yes. so our, our methodologies are overlap in some ways, you know, although maybe your approach to materials as you collect them um, is somewhat different to my approach. But you were talking before about um, how in up north there were sort of boxes of, of treasures and things that have been swept away in floodwaters and... Yes. Um, so yeah, recently I guess with the floods in the northern rivers and in Sydney, um, the archives have been contacted by a lot of people who had material often ready to go uh, that had been washed away in the floods um, and yeah it was quite traumatic I think for a lot of people where they have their archive um, that's that's kind of um, been swept away and kind of recalling that um, and I think we were talking about that in the context of the environmental context yeah. of your work and and things degrading uh, yeah. as well yeah. um, is that something you're particularly conscious of in like Gippsland and the fires well, I mean, the, the work that I made that's in, that happened to be in the NGV um, exhibition, some people said to me, oh, this seems to be like a bit coy for, for you, this work. But for me, I think it was, it was a really good work uh, to be in that exhibition because I made it um, in response to the bushfires. It was called The Evacuation of Malakuda. So it was almost like a, uh, a historical documenting of a particular moment um, uh, of, of ecological cataclysm. And I was very interested then in how that became couched in this broader question about queerness. Mm. Um, a big, and the reason why I asked you about the, the flooding too, because I was interested in the idea of, you know, queerness has become such a byword for LGBTQIA+, but for me, queerness is about sort of the possibility of, um, you know, um, different modes of, of human existence or different um, ideas of family or community or, um, civilization even or society um, and how then maybe queerness provides a model of futurity for broader society you know mm. um, and feeding into some of those concepts of hippie and communal living and mm -hmm. and material mm. but that these things will be um, become necessary you know as we move into what does seem like a scary future you know ecologically um, or climatologically that we must rethink the way society is organised and that queerness maybe provides 
something of a roadmap, you know, if the demonstrates will ever listen. You know. <laughs> well, um, you know, we've got some uh, good suggestions up here. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, we might open it up for some questions. Action, so it's okay to share for the moment and um, we can go. But thank you so much, Paul and Nick. That's wonderful. Um, does anyone have any immediate questions? One, two, I will come back to you, but you got in first. I'm glad I got in first. Hi, Paul. And hello, Nick. Thanks for um, putting together the, uh, the interview. Paul, you've mentioned in the past uh, William S. Burroughs' The Wild Boys. I wonder if you can speak to that and how much that's had an influence on you. Yeah, um, William, William S. Burroughs um, was a writer of the so-called Beat Generation, spanning sort of the 50s and 60s, I guess, this heyday American writer um, that I came across as a younger man um, and sort of opened up a world for me, um, not just the Wild Boys, but also Junkie, Queer, and particularly Naked Lunch, which is seen as a, almost a neo-dartist um, reappraisal of the idea of the cut-up technique. Um, so yeah, for me, for me um, Burroughs is an artist who created works that were almost like, I mean, I read Naked Lunch three times and it was different every time I read it because apparently he wrote this manuscript and then physically cut it up and then sticky taped it back together, which may be an apocryphal story, but does give a glimpse into how he constructed or deconstructed, reconstructed continuously, you know, like an Ouroboros eating its own tail, like making these kind of works. I think for me, narratologically and also physically, um, his approach and also the Dardis that he drew, I mean, the classical Dardis of the early 20th century that he drew upon as well, have had a, like, a, you know, a, an unending influence on my work um, because they were so inherently anti-fascist as well. Um, when you cut an image up or you're cutting a text up, um, you are attacking the very notion that there is a stable, singular meaning. Um, and that's, that can only ever be a radical idea, you know. So, but I think Boris did it best maybe, you know. Mm. Hi, um, I guess mine is less about your work and more about you. Um, your work is so colourful and beautiful. I guess it's very controversial to some. Um, but I just want to know, do you think your work, does, are you, I mean, it's also quite, it's protesting in a way, I guess. Do you think that reflects the person you are in your everyday life? Are you loud? Do you say the things you say in those images? I mean, it's, I just, I just want to know, does it reflect how you are every day? Do I seem loud and <laughs> colourful? <laughs> so they're more internal, I guess, thoughts that you're having as opposed to things you're saying out loud. I think, um, I think the, the type of work I make and the colour and the exuberance and everything like allows me to be like a normal yeah. person. Like, so that, I yeah, need to externalise all of yeah. that so that I can be just, you know... I mean, I'm an introvert and, um, you know, quite a solitary person and I live regionally and I don't have any social life and <laughs> I've been sober for 10 years oh and it's like, um, I make quilts and grow vegetables. So I'm like basically living <laughs> a 19th century lifestyle, you know, um, on a 21st century, you know, timeline. So um, 
I guess the answer is no, I'm not. Okay, no, 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 that's good. I, I, I guess I wanted to know because it is so loud. And so it's your outlet. It's your alternative personality, alter ego. Totally, yeah. I love that. Okay, thank you so much. Oh, yeah. No, no, protest and activism, definitely. But I don't see that as, well, I mean, it's loud, like, in a way, but it's not, I'm not a loud person. <laughs> Hi, I just had a question about whether you use your Christian or Catholic symbols in a sort of pop art way where they sort of randomly just reflect, you know, the, the mix of culture that we've come from, or whether you're trying to really interrogate and redefine um, the meaning of the Catholic symbols, particularly their anti-queer history. Mm. Yeah, no, it's a good question because, um, yeah, I grew up in a very Catholic household. Um, and I, um, I sort of let, I stopped going to church when I was about 15. Um, but ironically, after I left, you know, the church, then I became very interested in church history and I reread the Bible when I was in my 20s. Um, and the Bible's a very interesting text. I mean, you know, talk about William Burroughs, like it's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, a it's poetic and it's apocalyptic and it's, a you know, it's a very interesting historical document and, um, I think, uh, I think the symbology of Christianity is not fixed and singular. I think it's a very rich, interesting history, um, and there's a multiplicity of readings and, and forms. Like, for example, um, in the early church, um, you barely ever see um, the crucifix, for example, just such a ubiquitous image of Christianity. That only emerges much later because there was so much controversy about the status of Christ in, in the early church, about his divinity and his... Um, you know, corporeality and so on and so forth. So there are all these other mystical kind of images that we use. So, I mean, I, I always look at Francis Bacon's use of the crucifix, for example, which was formal and was just about, hum, you know, human suffering. Because ultimately the crucifixion scene is an image of human suffering. So much of that's lost um, because of the historical trajectory of the church and its status in Western society and its connection to yeah, oppressive histories of patriarchy and colonialism and so on and so forth. I think, I think all the, I mean, I don't have a single answer. Like, I, I think I'm constantly interrogating that history because it's very personal to me and I grew up in that tradition and I know it sort of intimately because I lived through it. Um, but I'm always interested in, in like, emptying out those symbols and, and re-appropriating um, them um, all the time in, in the work, you know, because I, I see them just as... as um, other, you know, just as other found objects in the work, you know. Mm. Got a question to your back, Paul. <laughs> Hiya, how are you? Um, I was just wondering, you've had such an incredible career. I was wondering if you had any advice for younger artists who admire you and would love to be where you are in hypothetically 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> um, Oh, that's always a challenging question. It feels like a lot of pressure to give, like, young people advice. It's like, don't do, don't do any of the things that I did, like, you know, like... Um, um, I, think, uh, I think the advice, I mean, the advice I always give to young artists, actually, is to just stay true to your voice, what, what it is you're doing, you know, your project, and, um, and try not to care what other people think about it you know it's, it seems like a really cliche thing to say but it's really true like you have to follow your own vision because that's what an artist is supposed to be that's if artists have any agency in society it's their their unique vision and they're they're sort of drawing out um 
from maybe hidden realms or subterranean places or um, places society would prefer not to look, drawing those things out into the public space and having those discussions. So I think um, an artist's intuition and their inner voice and vision is always the most important guiding thing, you know, because that's what it, that's why I love looking at art because um, you're seeing the world from someone else's perspective, you know. So um, if you're true to that voice, it then you can't go wrong, you know, that's what I think. Mm. Anyone else? We've still got a few more minutes. Thank you so much. I have two possibly unrelated questions. I'm very interested if you could speak a little of the actual making, what it feels like in the body to, to stitch the quilts through and the, the time and whether you do that in quietude or, you know, and when you put the huge quilts together, how heavy they might be because uh, do they have batting in between and, and the, the backs of them, are they important also in, in your practice? So that's just sort of like a broad, could you speak about the making? And my more specific, possibly unrelated question, but I'm curious about how the individual quilts, although all of them flow together, how they acquire their titles. Do they, the text that they're, thing that they're called, does that, assume is that after the fact of the making or do they get does does the text of their naming become part of you know become revealed to you as you're making or what what is the or is there a diversity of all of those things while you're making the separate works and individual pieces mm -hmm. um good questions um i always feel like only government ministers should have to answer to unrelated yeah. questions in quick succession um <laughs> On the second matter, <laughs> yeah, the titling is, you're right to point it out because it's always a real pain, um, especially because of, I always am interested in like broad arcing, um, you know, multiplicity of readings and things in my work. It always feels counterintuitive that then to title a work and impose some kind of idea or singularity or written word actually, imposing a written word on an image actually, that's what titling is and that, that seems really counterintuitive. Um, and yet calling something untitled seems like always like an impossibility as well. So it's, that's always a negotiation. That's where my partner also helps a lot, um, you know, as well as the making, like he always comes up with good titles for works and we argue about titles for works and, and things like that. Um, um, so yeah, it's always, it's always a difficult process. It sometimes comes before the work, um, but usually it's um, imposed afterwards, um, and you try not to delimit the reading of the work too much by the, mm -hmm. the anchoring of that, of mm -hmm. the title. On the first question, I mean, for me, the physicality of making is such a central part of what mm -hmm. I'm doing, you know. Um, one of, one of the ironic limitations of the work and how it embraces the idea of the pictorial or the history of painting or this type of thing is the sort of um, it being read as a two-dimensional flat object on the wall, whereas actually it's an incredibly sculptural, tactile object and it's an incredibly physical thing to make. Um, and anyone who's done sort of needlework knows it's an RSI-inducing, back pain-inducing, labour-intensive in thing. Um, which makes it all the more ironic that there's this old, you know, Victorian idea of the feminine ideal and the dainty work of, you know, like embroidery. We all know it's, it's tough work, you know. Um, 
So uh, for me, but for me, that's I think where the um, incredibly cathartic and, and healing part of, of the methodological process comes from, almost this physicality and this yeah. huge transference of energy um, that's involved. It, you know, it's quite purgative, and I think it also connects to um, like a pre-industrial temporality that's been completely lost in our society of online space and click and collect and whatever. It's sort of it is an embracing of um, an ancient kind of way of thinking and, and you know, of weaving and, and thinking with the hands and yes. of slowness and meditation. And, and I think, yeah, that's a huge part of the, the healing aspect of making for me, yeah. So healing within the framework also of resistance, healing as, as a sort of dissolving of some sort of filter while also resisting mm. those the, the temporalities of post-industrial yeah. capitalisms that, you know, click and collect. Oh, oh totally, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, I mean, textiles have a very, very long yeah. history yeah, um, of being intimately connected to radical political activity. You know, the, the suffragette banners and the, the, the banners of the early trade union movement, they were all hand-sewn. And particularly the suffragette ones, which are also decorative objects, was almost like a way of displaying gendered labour, displaying the hidden labour of the domicile in the street, which is like incredibly radical kind of thing. But then, as I said, with weaving and things like ancient traditions that go back, you know, millennia, yeah. they were also about, that was also about sitting around in a circle. It was about um, mainly like feminine spaces where the transference of knowledge and storytelling and things happened in a very lateral, non-hierarchical way. And that's also... A, a radical image, um, you know, that resists the ways in which we're expected to exist today, you know. Mm. Any questions for Nick? <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you, Nick and Paul. Paul, I'm uh, uh, very curious about the physicality of your storage and if you call it archive, but I suppose you, uh, you got, uh, saw some of your work uh, and you spoke with some dread before about it. Um, what, 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 can you describe the physicality of your junk? <laughs> yeah, no. Um, yeah, no, it's a good question. Um, because, yeah, because I do... Yeah, because the work is so physically, like, materially intensive. Um, it's always been a problematic um, uh, thing for me. Um, and I think, when, like, say, when my life was more itinerant and I would have to go from share house to share house, for example, it was very problematic. Um, and, you know, a whole lot of my installation work was sitting in my parents' garden shed for quite a number of years. Um, and then after my work was censored as well, around 2014, my work sat in a shipping container for about four years. Um, so, but honestly, I mean, my work's quite extreme in terms of the materiality, but I think all artists actually deal with this problem um, in, in some regard, you know. Um, what happens to it and how it sort of haunts them and, and then has to be purged and, um, you know, I mean, art, some artists, like, destroy their works, you know, because they become, you know, they have a lifespan and, you know, that's, I mean, that's always a tragic thing, but I think it's always the right of the artist to destroy their own work or for, to allow it to disintegrate or to, to um, I mean, the strategy I've deployed to solve this problem is to actually um, deconstruct things and re reassemble them. And that seems to work well for me, for actually taking things physically apart 
and thinking about how they exist and how they can become new things, you know, because it's part of the logic, I guess, in the politics of the work. But it's always, that's always a struggle, and I think it's something everyone struggles with because we've all got junk, you know, that kind of accrues in our lives that we don't know what to do with, you know. So, so then in Gippsland, you have a, 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 a warehouse, or how, what's your studio look like? Well, I've got a proper big bogan shed now, so... <laughs> That was one of the good things about moving regionally. I have a bit more space, so I've got a nice big shed. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm becoming better in my old age at organising things into, you know, categories of things rather than just having piles that I have to sift through like a rat. I don't want to end the conversation on junk, um, so I was going to ask one more question to Nick. Um, obviously, text and language is such a critical part, especially of the entrance of this exhibition, but also the Queer Archives recently changed their name, and I was curious if you could talk a little bit about reclaiming language when it comes to archives specifically. Ooh, sure. Um... So yes, uh, the Australian Queer Archives, we changed our name a couple of years ago. Uh, we started off as the Australian Gay Archives, then became the Lesbian and Gay Archives, a project kind of mirroring uh, a lot of the community uh, and community organisations, and then shifted uh, a couple of years ago. Um, so I, I guess a lot of that charts the queer community, uh, as we would now kind of frame it in many ways. Um, but it's also one that still, I guess for us, allowed all the multiplicity, you know, it allowed the camp uh, community in Australia before the gay liberation period, you were camp or you were square, um, all the way through. Um, and all of the, the multiplicity of identities within that. But it's still one that had uh, a long process for us in terms of um, kind of trying to take our organisation, uh, work with community, our communities that we are part of. Um, so the process, I guess, of reclaiming is always one of still maintaining um, and still honouring and still recognising that they all fit within a, a broad umbrella. Um, and, you know, I think there's often a, quite a, a pushback around language and, and in terms of, um, you know, uh, young eating their parents and words no longer meaning the same things. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it's always a bit of a process for us as an organisation. Um, and I think that slippage in meaning over time is something which is really uh, interesting, uh, which I guess is one thing that you deal a lot with in your work. Thank you. Um, if there aren't any more questions, we are just over time. So um, I'd like to just thank Paul and Nick and please give them a huge round of applause. Thank you so much for coming. The exhibition is still on until the 20th of November, so please come back and see it. Thank you.